linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, today I've got something for you that you haven't heard somewhere else before. It's an interview in which Dr. Charles Grobe speaks with Dr. Gary Fisher about his work in the early 1960s with severely disturbed children. Uh, that was when he treated them with LSD and psilocybin. And I think you're going to find it quite interesting, uh, because even if you aren't uh, interested in the research itself, Gary has several great stories to tell about the good old days when psychedelic research was in full bloom. But before I get to the interview, I uh, first want to thank several of our fellow saloners who have made donations during the past two weeks to help offset the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. First of all, uh, a couple of weeks back, we received a donation from David A., along with a request to thank Panda Muffin for the donation. Well, uh, I misplaced that email for a while, but uh, now that it has reappeared, I can finally thank Panda Muffin for the donation. And uh, I suspect that Panda Muffin will duly thank David in return. I also uh, want to mention frequent donor and longtime friend of the salon, Robert O., who uh, just sent another donation from his home in Wales. And uh, here's part of what Rob has to say uh, in his email. Hi, Lorenzo. Just a quick hello, hoping all is well in your family camp. And to say that through some amazing synchronicities, plus an ayahuasca ceremony, which seemed to gel the event together, my family finally got together for the first time in 12 years. Could you please say a big hello to my daughter Kaylee, and congratulations for her success in graduating and getting work as a staff nurse at a local hospital, and her sister Joe for being a wonderful mother and human being, and to Kayla, Jake, Jamal, and Mora, the rest of my family. Apologies, but I'm sending another photo. Good health to you and your tribe, Lorenzo, and keep up the fantastic work you do. Peace to the world. Love, Rob. Well, no need to uh, apologize for sending the photo, Rob. As a fellow grandfather, I certainly recognize the impulse. And uh, what a fine-looking tribe you have. Uh, By the way, and uh, I like that T-shirt in the photo that says, I can feel the love. And I can also feel the love from Carl R., David P., SMD Books, and Connie S., all of whom uh, made very generous donations to the salon. And uh, particularly you, Connie. uh, uh, Man, that was way over the top, and uh, I certainly appreciate it very much. To be honest, I'm uh, really overwhelmed as these donations come in, and they are uh, allowing me to do things like I did this past weekend and uh, travel to L.A. to record some new material for the salon. So, Connie, Carl, David, and SMD Books, thank you one and all. And now, uh, for today's program, as I just mentioned, uh, last Saturday, Dr. Charlie Grove and I met with Dr. Gary Fisher to discuss Gary's research with severely disturbed children. As you know, uh, I've podcasted several other talks and conversations with uh, both of these distinguished researchers, but I don't think that I've uh, properly introduced them as far as their credentials are concerned. Although uh, some of the popular histories of early psychedelic research uh, don't uh, always spend as much time on Gary Fisher as they do on the more flamboyant characters of that era, like uh, Timothy Leary, Alan Watts, and Aldous Huxley, it was Dr. Gary Fisher who provided much of the professional framework in which these psychedelic medicines were investigated back then. 
And over time, uh, I plan on expanding the Gary Fisher section of my MatrixMasters.com website, and hopefully you'll then be able to get a better picture of the importance of Gary's work. As for uh, Dr. Grobe, well, it's hard not to use a lot of superlatives when describing all that he has done in the realm of psychedelic research. For example, uh, he led the first safety study of MDMA after it hit the streets as ecstasy and was banned. Charlie also uh, participated in human study involving ayahuasca in South America, and he is just now finishing an FDA-approved study in which he gave psilocybin to end-stage cancer patients to uh, see if it would help ease their anxiety of an impending death. What I'm trying to say is that these two are giants in the field of psychedelic research, but to me, they are just Gary and Charlie, two of my closest friends. So it has uh, become difficult for me to think of them in any other way. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is uh, that even though you may think of Dr. Fisher and Dr. Grobe as extremely accomplished people, which they are, I hope you can also think of them as two people who are very much like you and me, just uh, regular people who are doing their best to leave their corner of this world in a little better shape than it was when they arrived. Now, what you're about to hear is uh, quite possibly the first public discussion of some of the work Gary did in 1962 at a hospital in Southern California. The only report that was written about this work has uh, never been published till now, and you'll find a link to it along with the program notes for this podcast. Its full title is Interim Report on Research Project, an investigation to determine therapeutic effectiveness of LSD-25 and psilocybin on hospitalized, severely emotionally disturbed children. And uh, by the way, this research took place between April and December of 1962. Let me just uh, read a couple of sentences from Gary's report to uh, give you a little better idea of what the work uh, entailed. And I quote, We have given treatment to 12 patients. They have ranged in age from 4 years 10 months to 12 years 11 months. All patients are severely emotionally disturbed and are considered variants of childhood schizophrenia and infantile autism. Now, uh, as you'll hear in just a minute, the results of these experiments were uh, nothing short of spectacular in my opinion. However, uh, I should warn you that your ears won't be deceiving you if you uh, think that this interview sounds as if it came from two different recorders because uh, that's how I had to do it. (laughs) Uh, Since I don't have a stereo microphone, I had to use two recorders, one for Gary and one for Charlie, and then I uh, cut and pasted them together as uh, best I could. So even though the three of us were sitting at the same dining room table, it uh, sounds as if we were in three different rooms. Uh, Hopefully that won't interfere with your listening experience. So uh, just sit back, relax, and join Dr. Gary Fisher, Dr. Charlie Grobe, and me for a Saturday afternoon conversation. So, well, I don't know quite how to begin with this, except for the fact that uh, a little background for Charlie is, is I've done a, a, I've done a couple of recordings with Gary and uh, we talked about some of the work mm-hmm. he did here with the kids and I put those podcasts out and and I've had uh, analysts and psychiatrists write write to me and ask mm-hmm. if they could see the report mm-hmm. and 
Uh, Gary gave me a copy of it, and it took me only about a year to get it typed. <laughs> I'm not, it was a lot of work. Uh, I didn't realize at the time. So I, I typed up this report, and as I, you know, got into it, I realized, my gosh, you know, this is stuff, something that's never going to happen again. I mean, there were no IRBs, and, and uh, what's IRB? <laughs> No, that's it's the Institutional Review Board or the Human Subjects Committee. Well, every, um, I mean, a study like this would have to go through layers of approval. Uh, you'd have to go through the, the FDA, the DEA. You'd also have to go through your, your hospital um, research committee and your mm-hmm. hospital IRB, which looks at Safety issues and the well, fact we didn't tell anybody what we were doing. Well, <laughs> that was in 1962. Times have changed. Now, now you can't do anything without uh, filing it in triplicate and, and waiting for it to be approved. So, um, you, you, you know, for working with children using psychedelics in an approved context. That would be about the last population that would ever receive approval. I don't, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility, but um, it, it would be the last population to be studied for, for ethical and safety and uh, cultural con- convention reasons. Well, I was reading the thing that you um, typed up. And it was very interesting, you know, because um, I didn't remember so much of it. And um, but it really um, should be put out there somewhere uh, in the world to say, look, this was what these people did uh, in this year, and this is the results they got with these kids, and and of course the dosages. Right. Too, because right. we were using 400 milligrams with these little kids. Micrograms. Micrograms. Right, right, right. No, it was, you had a, it was a unique uh, opportunity, yeah. interesting point in time when these substances were available, but they had not as yet um, proliferated out into the public consciousness, mm-hmm. and there was no perceptible abuse liability at that point mm-hmm. in 1962. Uh, it's also a, it's a fascinating uh data set um, and uh, what's of course so intriguing is you were working with children with the most severe form of mental illness who were hospitalized in a state institution long-term institutionalized children and many of these kids appeared to have had a very um, Salutary or very therapeutic uh, effect from your treatment mm-hmm. interventions without apparent uh, injury. One of the things I always remember, Dan Castile was a psychiatrist on board, and uh, he had never taken acid. He was afraid to. Um, but uh, he said, well, why don't you guys start with Nancy? Because she's dying anyway. I thought, great, here we are starting. And he says she's dying anyway. So Nancy was one of the sickest children on she your was, unit. She was the sickest unit. She was uh, in um, camisole tie-down all the time. She was self-abusive. She was black and blue. Uh, she was skinny. She had no meat on her bones and uh, never talked and just screamed. That's all she did was just scream. How long had she been uh, in the hospital like that, that you knew of? 
Nothing comes to mind about how old she was. She was about 12 years old, yes. and she was starving herself. Yes. She was uh, engaging in self-injurious behavior oh, of, a yes. of such a severity that she had to be tied down. Yes. She was not interacting constructively with anyone, not speaking, yes. uh, screaming in rage most of the time, not, but also not making uh, intelligible sense. Yes. The thing that she said... Uh, the first words she said, see, we didn't know that uh, she had any vocabulary because she never talked. And so I, and after, I mean, during the LSD session, the first session, her first session, she started screaming and screaming and screaming. And so I went up to her and just said, stop screaming. I can't stand this anymore. And she stopped and looked at me in my eyes and said, I have to scream, and you have to leave me alone and let me scream as long as I need to scream. And those were the first words you would heard from her. Oh, give me the chill to even remember them. And she was, you know, she was all tied up and bound because we, could, we couldn't take her out of a camisole because she would take her eyes and pull them out. How was she um, after her first psychedelic experience? Was she still um, refusing to eat and injuring herself and needing to be tied down? <laughs> well, it was funny. There's a whole sequence of things that happened. And then finally, she got to the point where she would put a Kleenex on her hand so that she wouldn't hit herself. And so I just got tired of it, you know. And so um, talk about crossing doctor-patient <laughs> lines. And so she was doing that, and I just grabbed the tissue, tore it up, and said, you don't need that goddamn <laughs> uh, thing to make you stop uh, hitting yourself. You can stop hitting yourself anytime you want to. And she just got once. Mm. And she thought about that for a while and never hit herself again. Oh. And, and this was after several sessions? Or? Yeah. yeah. So she progressively improved. Oh, she was herself. amazing. Smart. Didn't oh need to be tied God. down. Did she start to eat again? Oh, Put yeah. on weight? Mm -hmm. did, she, did she communicate? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Was she? Uh, one time... Um, she was uh, saying something to some of the nurses, and she said, well, I've got the uh, night staff buffaloed because they don't know what's going on, you know. And I heard her, and I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, I guess I'll have to have a meeting with the night uh, staff to tell them who you really are. And she went, oh, goddamn fucking asshole. <laughs> so, so she did have some vocabulary. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, boy, did she ever. But she was just wonderful. I mean, she was amazing. Did, 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 she, uh, did she start to experience uh, periods where she had a, 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 an improved mood? Oh, yeah. That? She yeah. was in better spirits? Oh yeah, she was not. She wasn't in camisoles, and she went around the ward, and she uh, she was so bright, and she would. Um, I don't. I mean, she would mimic other patients, and she was a trip.
Did did do you recall if I mean what was her diagnosis at that time? Do you recall? We can find out which uh, patient she was. They're uh, they're in here by number and their diagnosis is uh, listed. She was uh, female. Was she eleven or twelve? You know, one or Here's right her. in there. And. Uh, Let's see, there's an 11-year-old, three-month uh, female that had 11 sessions. Yeah. And I assume Nancy probably had as many sessions as anybody. Yes. That that was the most number of sessions, 11. Yes. So mm-hmm. that was probably her. It says the diagnosis, uh, childhood schizophrenia, mm-hmm. onset of disturbance, three years. And so do you recall if she continued to be, <coughs> let's say, delusional? Or did she have a uh, improved reality testing? Yes. Yeah, okay. And what's interesting too is that she relived being molested uh-huh. by her grandfather uh-huh. because she would, in an LSD session, she would relive that and say, no, Grandpa, no, 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 leave me alone, you know, leave me alone. And so she relived it all. That's very interesting. So it's we could conjecture even that some that a very severe sexual, perhaps physical traumas, led to her psychiatric decompensation yeah, some years earlier. She would have been three years old when he right. was. Uh, right. What I found interesting, and you're right up here, where you where you briefly review the the case histories of um, 12 patients you treated in 1962. Was that a number of them apparently had sustained severe trauma, and this was one of the most salient um, observations you made during their treatment sessions that they worked through that old trauma mm-hmm. and came out of it. Uh, in, in a healthier, more uh, euthymic, uh, 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 less disturbed and disturbing state. Yeah. I mean, th- this also then reflects the current research going on by Mithoffer in South Carolina where he uses MDMA to treat chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. His preliminary findings appear to be positive, that it's helpful. Now, you were not using MDMA. It was not available for you back then, but using um, LSD and psilocybin, uh, you've, you similarly found that um, uh, the uh, uh, subjects were really able under the influence of the psychedelic, very much able to process the trauma and to um, work through the blocks that it had imposed upon them. I I find this very, very impressive. Yeah, your notes at the end about uh, Nancy say uh, that she has recently been making home visits and now attends hospital school in the mornings. Mm-hmm. So that's from being uh, on death's doorstep. Yeah. Uh, that's a long way. Now, Gary, I, I recall we've talked about this case before, and you told me another story of um, when you were forced to shut down your treatment program and Nancy's reaction to your informing her that you would no longer be able to mm-hmm. um, uh, to facilitate psychedelic treatment sessions. Yeah, that was uh, Patty. Oh, different case. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, so I was trying to explain to them why we couldn't do these sessions anymore. So this was around 64, 65, and the government had ordered your study to shut down. Yeah. And uh, so Patty 
was a manic depressive and then finally came out of it. And she was a twirler. You know, many kids that are very... uh, She would just twirl and twirl and twirl and bang into other people, bang into other patients, bang into walls. Uh, Physically, she was a wreck. And blind also. She was blind. She had retrolental... I think it's, uh, there's one case in here with retinitis pigmentosa yeah. that you described. Yeah. And uh, so uh, oh, I adored her. She had she had the most gorgeous hands when she would touch you. It was like there's just a certain touch that she would have. And so she was saying, you know, uh, do do you know where the LSD, where it is? And I said, yes, it's in. San Francisco, that's where Sandoz is. And she said, well, she said, I think what you need to do is to go up there and take a message to the people who have it from me and tell them that Patty Smith says that she really needs it. Oh, God. (laughs) And you were telling her you couldn't do it again. Yeah, I know. I mean, talk about being traumatized. You know, these were heartbreaking. And, and she was, what, 10, 11 or something? Uh, she was 12. 12. Mm-hmm. These treatments occurred at Sweetgrass um, Hospital. Mm-hmm. And when did you arrive at the Earth? When did you take your position there? Do you recall? How long before you started this treatment program? Maybe a year. A year. Did you go there with the intention of starting a LSD and psilocybin treatment program? With well, uh, see, I had been, I had gone to Canada, and had taken LSD, and so my well, thought in was a research study by the Saskatchewan group, the Nick Chuelos, and so I thought, well. You know, if it could change me, it can change anybody. So that was my that was my thought that it would work with anybody if it could work with me because I was just in my head all the time, totally in my head. And um, you know, I was I was a very intellectual intellectualized. You know, I had a 4.0 average and an IQ of 176 and all this stuff, you know, and what's it good for? You know, nothing. And um, so uh, that's what I, what I thought. I said, well, can, it can help these kids if it helped me. So you were working at the hospital at the time you'd had your, when you had your exp- uh, first LSD experience? You Like on a holiday or something? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you had this... Um, this uh, hunch that perhaps psychedelics might be helpful for this patient population you were working with, and, and these patients were perceived as being quite hopeless. Hopeless. Having a very hopeless outlook, hopeless yeah. prognosis. Yeah. So I imagine you uh, presented your your plans to the hospital, to the director or the hospital administrators. <laughs> You just went ahead and did. We didn't tell anybody. Oh, well, that was a different world. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did not tell anybody. And Dan Steele, the psychiatrist on the ward, uh, he was very cool, very cool, and he was very intrigued by me. 
you know, like, how could I do all these things, you know? And uh, so, um, you know, he gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do. Now, um, were you aware of other psychiatrists or psychologists in the, around the, uh, elsewhere in the country or elsewhere in the world who were treating children with psychedelics at that time? No. So you were not working with the knowledge that there was another program going on anyplace else? Well, the only person I'd ever heard was was a neurologist um, at the University of Chicago. And I can't remember her name. Uh, but she was uh, giving LSD to um, adolescents at bedtime. Wow. At bedtime? Yes, at bedtime. Before they went to sleep? Yeah. <laughs> It didn't keep them up all night. Yes, it did. It did. Okay. <laughs> and so I said it doesn't work as a, a you know, a as a... Hypnotic. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a good sleeping pill. That's that researcher had obviously not tried LSD herself, <laughs> or she might have figured that out ahead of time. Maybe, huh? did, did you have any association with a uh, child psychiatrist at NYU named Loretta Bender? Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was... Um, uh, very, she was one of the A uh, physicians who were, were uh, working with children. Right. And um, there's a, a test named after her. Right. To her, right. To her. I believe there, I believe she did some exploration of utilizing um, LSD with very disturbed children. I believe there was that in, mm. in the 50s, but uh, I mean the communication. 50 years ago wasn't what it is today. Right, yeah. And so her work might be sitting in a trunk somewhere, too. To, uh, well, I think to there's start. one published study, yes, which I've seen. Now, were you involved with the uh, UCLA group that for a while in the mid-60s explored the use of psychedelics with, uh, with severely ill uh, children and adolescents? No. After I left Friedrich, because we couldn't do our work anymore, that's when Tim asked me if I would go to Ziwataneho. Tim Leary. Yeah, Tim Leary. And, and, and how did you meet Tim Leary, or how did you? Meet well, him? Uh, because uh, Tim was a good friend of a friend of mine who was a yoga instructor, uh-huh, uh-huh. and um, so she had told Tim about what I was doing, and so that's when he came to me and said, "Our people don't know what they're doing." And will you go down and sort of teach them? So, so your your work arose entirely independent of uh, Leary's group in in Boston, and your and, and your lineage then in regards to being a psychedelic researcher came from the Western Can- Canadian group of uh, yeah. Osmond and Hoffer and Schwelich. Mm-hmm. Shoela. It's a hard name. And don't forget Duncan Blewett. Duncan Blewett. Yeah, Duncan Blewett. Yeah. Uh, Shuelos was your brother-in-law. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Duncan Blewett uh, just died recently. He had uh, Alzheimer's. Right, right. And I, and I think one cannot credit enough the, uh, the Canadian group for the, uh, really, the breakthroughs they yeah, made yeah. and the, uh, really, the tremendous... Uh, research data, they accrued treating very, very sick individuals. Uh, Osmond's work and the other groups, rest of the group's work with alcohol, chronic alcoholics in particular was 
quite astounding and mm-hmm. still alcoholism remains a clinical condition for which modern medicine does not have much to offer. So that patient population would, you know, examining the Canadian group's work back mm-hmm. in the 50s and early 60s, that patient population would certainly be worth uh, looking at. You know, since uh, there was no such thing as email and long distance was really expensive back then, uh, so there's not the communication back then there is today, but did you keep up with the uh, Saskatchewan group at all? Did you tell them what you're doing and talk back and forth? Well, yeah, because uh, uh, Nick uh, Shoilis, uh they would come down and visit, and, um, and then they got involved with the Alcoholics Anonymous in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one guy in particular, and um, I can't remember his name, but her name, uh, she was an alcoholic too, was B. And um, <clears throat> um, so we started then giving LSD to people that they were recommending. So we did some work in Palm Springs, and... Um, one of the interesting things, because, you know, this, this is, life is a mystery. Um, uh, there's this older lady, and she was very concerned about her child who was psychotic. And so, since she was so agitated uh, by this child, they we or Nick or somebody decided that she should take LSD and it might help her understand what her limits and and what her abilities would be. And uh, what happened, we were in the house and um, all of a sudden she gave off this smell, like a gaseous smell. And we had to take her outside because she was... You know, was getting in all the clothing and all the furniture, and uh, so she had to go outside, and she had all of her session outside, and this stuff coming out of her. When she'd take LSD, it would release this odor. Yeah. Really? She, she was detoxified. Perhaps. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> So you, you saw some remarkable responses to this treatment model. Oh, yeah. And you treated a variety of different kinds of patients. Yeah, we had a, a couple, and they were in their mid-90s. Wow. And um, he was extremely concerned about his wife's death because he didn't know how he could live without her. So uh, we gave each of them LSD, but they were in separate rooms. And then after, at the end of the day, we put them together. Well, they were like teenagers. They were giggling and laughing and carrying on. And uh, she eventually died from cancer. And he became very active uh, in the community. And... Uh, did not show any sadness at her leaving because they both had been gotten to cosmic consciousness. You know, they both had hit the button and uh, they knew about death. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, it was. Very it was amazing. Care. I noticed that uh, 
most of the diagnosis of these children, getting back to your uh, work with the kids, is uh, childhood schizophrenia. There were one or two instances you mentioned autism, but uh, Charlie says, you know, a lot of these definitions have been evolving since then. So I, the reason I'm asking the question is, is the inquiries that come in by email are mainly people who are uh, have autistic kids, and they're they're wondering if there's any hope uh, down these lines. And obviously, there's not going to be research done uh, probably in the near future. But I was wondering if Charlie, if if you and Gary can talk a little bit to see if. Uh, Maybe some of these kids were were they all really seriously schizophrenic, or were they, you know, what? How do the well, definitions work? Di- diagnostic patterns have, have have changed quite a bit over the last uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, ch- childhood schizophrenia today is a far less common diagnosis. I think we have greater facility, you know, exploring the autistic spectrum, which can extend from very, very mild cases to uh, cases where there's profound incapacitation. Um, I I don't know how well you remember some of these cases in regards to, um, you know, how they presented and whether, um, you know, there were, for instance, developmental delays, particularly of... uh, language acquisition early on? Yeah, well, you know, we would we had very, very uh, li- limited information from the parents, close to none. Mm-hmm. Um, because, first of all, the parents had just abandoned these kids, and they never came to visit them. Um, but um, I know that I, a couple of years ago, I had people come and visit me wanting to give their uh, autistic children LSD. Mm-hmm. But um, they, um, you know, the, the kids were more functional. I right, mean, right. They, yeah, they were, I mean, they had speech and mm-hmm. uh, they went to school and so forth. But very often the, the people the people who came, you know, my... My solution to this one woman who kept wanting to give them LSD, I mean, um, uh, uh, I said, well, you need to take it first because she was so intermixed with... Uh, uh, enmeshed. Enmeshed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so they actually, uh, her husband was Mexican and... Uh, they uh, did actually go down to Mexico mm-hmm. and take LSD. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, not much happened. They took it at night and they went to bed and went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> they slept through it and could not remember their dreams in the morning. <laughs> well, you know, um, a number of years ago, I, I gave a talk on um, MDMA and uh, and um, and uh, one of the people in the audience was a was a um, an expert on infantile autism named uh, Peter Tangay, a former professor at UCLA. He then moved, I believe, to the University of Louisville, but a very well-regarded um, expert. And afterwards, he spoke with me and he said, "You know, I um, I was struck by what you said about how MDMA uh, increases uh, empathy." 
because it's my belief that in uh, infantile autism, the core deficit is a deficit of um, empathy. So just looking hypothetically, do you feel that um, psychedelics can facilitate uh, experiences of uh, heightened empathy, and might that have lasting therapeutic impact? Well, but you have to sort of remember what our population was and the lack of sophistication that uh, we were dealing with. Um, um, autistic, the autistic kids uh, that we named autistic uh, basically didn't have any language. No language whatsoever. No. And they may also have had, uh, this more severe uh, cases of autism also are, often have a serious mental retardation. Mm-hmm. So there was, there may, it, there may need to be a threshold of, uh, you know, functional capacity yeah. in order to um, derive some benefit. We had uh, one little girl. Her name was Coralie, and she was a little redhead, and she was tiny as can be, and um, so uh, she couldn't stand to be touched, and um, she would scream if anybody got near her. And after the session, uh, she stopped screaming, and she always wanted to be sitting on somebody's lap. She was like 20 pounds, mm-hmm. and uh, but she, you know, she had no language. And you saw sustained improvement after your treatments with her. Well, to this limited extent limited that that she time. that she wanted to be around people and touch people and sit on their lap and of course as we said this would you know this would be the last population in today's world that we'd likely be able uh, to look at because of you know safety issues uh, uh, cultural issues as well um, and also you know we do have treatments uh, you know we do have psychopharmacologic treatments uh, that can help modify behaviors particularly the atypical neuroleptics but uh, these are treatments that need to be administered daily often for extensive periods of time and they and although they can help with uh, safety issues and with function issues they're not without a uh, profile of rather serious side effects, including significant weight gain, uh, significant uh, disruption of uh, metabolic profiles, uh, including uh, glucose metabolism, could uh, heighten, could amplify the risk of developing or the likelihood of developing diabetes. So uh, conventional treatments have made some progress. Nevertheless, um, they are not without risk. And here, you're... you're your experience was of an entirely different kind of treatment model that did not involve a daily administration of a drug. Um, and, uh, and from your old notes and reports and your recollection, it did not appear that you uh, uh, incurred any uh, damaging effects in these patients of yours. No, because you must remember, you have to put the time element in there. You know, we hadn't a clue what we were doing. And everything was experimental day after day. And um, when I think back on what we were doing, it seemed to me, on, in retrospect, we were very brave to do what we were doing. 
Absolutely. It was, you, you were, you were a, a frontiersman. Yes. Pushing, pushing the limits. And, but I, and I'd say in your case, you did so uh, safely. I would not say that of all the explorers from the 50s and early mid 60s, but I think from, and I've known you for quite some time now, we've had many discussions of your old experience. My sense was you were very careful in how you uh, selected uh, patients, how you prepared them, and uh, were highly skilled in facilitation and integration afterwards. And from what I've gathered from you, your, your outcomes tended to be quite good without uh, evident injury. So uh, in, in your case, you seemed to, although you were working with limited information, you were kind of feeling your way on your own out there, your instincts appeared to have been very, very good. I noticed with uh, Nancy, since we've been talking about her, that uh, six days after her LSD session, where she had uh, 200 micrograms of LSD, uh, six days later you gave her 16 uh, milligrams of psilocybin, and then 12 days after that she went back and did LSD again. Uh, and then it, it goes on until December. There was a 53-day gap and a 49-day gap. Uh, so you, I assume you were just experimenting with the, the LSD psilocybin to see if you could find differences, one more effective than the other. And uh, But it seems to have been alternating with uh, a lot of these kids throughout. Uh, did you find any differences with uh, psilocybin, LSD, or was it the psychedelic experience that was uh, maybe doing the work? Damn divino. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a I, long time ago, how, how you know. How did you come up with... Uh, I can understand you started with LSD. How, how did you decide to put psilocybin in the mix, too? Well, just experimenting, you know, because uh, I had always found psilocybin much um, easier to, to deal with. Uh, LSD is very powerful, and uh, psilocybin was much more mellow. Now, when did you f try psilocybin first? That was uh, that was pretty hard to come by back in those days. Seems like, from what I've heard. Gee, we got it uh, directly from Sandoz. They were little blue pills. It, it was not hard for investigators. And, and to be an investigator, all you needed to do was contact the pharmaceutical company in Switzerland. Say you were interested in uh, investigating the effects on of the drug on patients, and they would send you uh, for minimal cost, yeah. you know, a, a substantial quantity. Yeah. And of course, I imagine the model back in those days were, for some at least, that before experimenting with these unknown uh, drugs on. Uh, on other people, you would first have to explore the terrain yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. Always, always, always. Well, I don't, I don't see the potential of a study with young people as young in the foreseeable future, but if you were going to create a protocol for not children as seriously uh, ill as these, these children were, but uh, for maybe people with... Uh, Asperger's syndrome or something less than full-on uh, autism. Is, is there any way you could devise a study where you would, uh, not just a safety study, because I think among the three of us at least we know that it would be safe, but uh, if, if it got into a phase two, phase three study, how would you actually treat children? Did you, did you, have, you, know, did you have therapy sessions with them in between these uh, LSD oh, sessions? No. no? 
So they'd just be back in the ward until you had your next session, other than whatever your normal therapy was. No, no, well, you, I thought you would um, meet with the kids in the days afterwards and see how they were doing and try to see if you could well, communicate and them. process. We live with you them. saw them every day or every day every that you came day, to work. So you, you, there was, to that degree, I think there was ongoing treatment, and to yeah. the degree that the kid could communicate, Gary and his colleagues were uh, engaging in Yeah, and we had a number of, um, of uh, technicians, uh, war technicians, who were very, very um, instructive, uh, very helpful. Uh, we were dependent on a lot of people. And, um, but... Um, I guess intuition was a lot of it. Now, um, <clears throat> over time, I think you did this work for at least a couple of years, two yes. or three years, mm -hmm. and over time you treated more and more patients, and it sounds like at least some of them were improving to an impressive degree. This must have caught the attention of the hospital director, of the uh, of the administrative directors what did what, what did they say to you when they saw how well your 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 patients receiving psychedelic sessions were doing well the shit hit the fan uh, when um, uh, it became known amongst the administration of the hospital uh, that um, things had been done with LSD and psilocybin. And so they went through the files and purged all the files and uh, burned them. And uh, when they were being interviewed, they, dis they said, no, nothing, no work like that had ever been done there. <laughs> 1984, they eliminated the history. Mm -hmm. And here we are. So they, they burned all the stuff. Because I went back try to do follow-up. Well, follow-up on who, you know? And I, they wouldn't let me on the ward or anything. So here we are some 45 years <laughs> later, resurrecting history. Lost history. <laughs> Lost history. And think of the, uh, think of what could have happened had this work progressed in the last 45 years, you know, that I think we'd have a, <laughs> psychiatry might be a little further along. <laughs> who knows? Do, do you, um, do you believe that the administrators who decided to shut down your program, do you believe that they were influenced by the growing uh, press accounts of uh, oh, yes. psychedelic use at Harvard amongst the Leary group and uh, yes. around the country? Yeah. So, so yeah. The, uh, the advent of the uh, counterculture and the, yeah, and the proliferation was, of yeah. psychedelics and mm -hmm. the uh, ascension of Tim Leary into prominent media uh, yeah, because it all became political. Yeah. Of course, the irony I'm seeing here is that uh, you know Larry and Alfred, of course, made it pretty uh, public, and that got political. But then they uh, <laughs> somehow talked you into joining them for a little while. I know that wasn't one of your your uh, finer uh, experiences to travel around with them. But isn't it kind of interesting that your work at the hospital kind of came to an end because of uh, yeah. that? And uh, you know what was interesting. And it was that um, Tim was an alcoholic, and his drug of choice was gin. And um, Ralph's 
first wife uh, would try to get him to smoke pot and he'd get a little high and then he'd run for the gin bottle and sw- uh, swing it out and get drunk. <laughs> so like what he was saying, that what he was representing was just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did become the leading uh, spokesman for... Uh, for the effects of psychedelics and their potential impact on society. Mm-hmm. I guess in your mind, that was, he was not the most constructive spokesman. Well, I think those times were full of just chaos. Right. And, uh, I mean, he wanted to be, you know, um, um, oh, what was his name? Um... He was a, a philosopher. I forget his name. Alan Watts? Yes, Alan Watts. And so Tim had hired um, the uh, auditorium in Santa Monica. And uh, so uh, Alan said they were wondering what to call this. And so uh, Alan said, well, Tim, why don't you say it like it is, the second coming? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and Alan was very clever. He was so funny. But that's what he thought it should be advertised as. And, and was that how it was advertised? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but you know, Tim loved to get up and talk and be admired. And well, You you were uh, with him in Zihuatanejo, in yeah. the Caribbean, and then at Millbrook. Uh, yeah. When did you leave Millbrook? How long did you stay, I should say? Well, I saw what was happening. Gaitra Devi had agreed to um, teach us how to become an ashram. And uh, so Tim had agreed that we would become an ashram and Gaitra Devi would come. And she had her bedroom next to mine and she um, sang to the morning every morning. It was just gorgeous. And uh, so then uh, Tim would, you know, stay uh, at Millbrook for a few days, and then he had to go to New York to do whatever. Well, then he'd be on the news, you know, talking about the establishment and how they were dangerous and how they're uh, limiting everybody in the world, and they should be assassinated and you know, <laughs> you know I mean he was just a nut <laughs> well it sounds like uh, there were a couple of them there you've told me a couple of funny stories about Billy Hitchcock learning to fly a helicopter <laughs> and Peggy ordering cows for the lawn yeah. and, uh, <laughs> did you hear those no, no, not that, oh, that was very funny well you know the estate at Millbrook was huge and um so Peggy was the one who footed the bill for everything because she wanted to marry Tim. And why he didn't marry her, I don't know, because he really loved money, and she had money. And uh, so we were driving up one day, and she said, you know, it would look real nice if we had cattle uh, uh, wandering through uh, the drive from the house to the gate and so then she was on the phone and she was ordered 40 head of cattle 
And then somebody said, but somebody has to look after them. You just, they just don't stand there, you know, and look beautiful. <laughs> and so then she said, and so then she said, and send somebody else to look after them. You know? <laughs> I mean, they lived in such a different world. Such a different world. And then Billy was crazy. Um, he, uh, the house at Millbrook was four stories high. And there were um, cupolas at both ends. And um, so he had gotten a helicopter because he wanted to have a helicopter in New York City and uh, join some financial thing. And uh, so um, he was uh, practicing. And so he just, you know, was out for about maybe 20 minutes and then told the pilot to get out that he had learned to go home because he had he said well no you don't you need a lot more lessons he says no 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 and so he we were up in the in the fourth floor and um, he kept getting closer to the house and we kept going like this stay back stay back you're going to run into the house well he ran into the house (laughs) (laughs) and the helicopter went crashing and then called uh, his they all had uh, a, a contact person 24-7 and he called and said just send another helicopter <laughs> god damn it just send another helicopter one that doesn't break <laughs> so that, that, those were crazy times at, at Melbourne well can we uh, is there anywhere else to go with this do you think uh, this this research that uh, did you do additional research? Are there more reports? Is there uh, more goodies here? That uh... Gary did write up one case at length, I believe the case of Nancy, which he published in the MAPS newsletter uh, a number of years ago. So that exists. Well, what about uh, the session with the guy who kept saying nothing's happening? Oh, right. right on. That's a good, that's a that, good story. That was uh, probably somewhere. Also on the MAPS newsletter, okay. the, 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 the treatment of a, a very difficult-to-treat patient. Yeah, this guy was the son of a big uh, wheel at um, oh, one of the studios. Um, I forget what, but anyway, he was very big. And um, so his, he had one son, and the son had gone to Menninger's, uh, had had electric shock, um, had gone to um, a place on the East Coast, another very famous place, I can't remember what it was now. But uh, he, his burden was to be the sickest, most untreatable per- person in the world because his father was this man who had great... Uh, success in the world and so uh, uh, what's his name um, um, what was the head of psychiatry Judd Barber Judd yeah and so Judd said was at the old Cedars of Lebanon hospital I believe or was that UCLA at that point no it wasn't UCLA it was no, it was Cedars of Lebanon before the um Merged with Mount Sinai to create Cedar Sinai. Yes, and before the nuts took it over. <laughs> What's that group? What, the Thalians? Hmm? 
That's at Cedar Sinai. Well, remember uh, they took over the building, uh, uh, Scientologists. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, Scientologists. Well, anyway, um, uh, this guy asked Chud if there was any any way that anybody could uh, um, handle an LSD uh, session with his patient, and. Um, so uh, Judd came to me and said, well, you're the only person we know. And Judd was sort of thought I was weird. And um, so he's, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do a session with this guy. And so he, he became an inpatient for two days, and we gave him LSD. Well, uh, this guy grunted and rolled and banged the walls. And uh, then when I would say, well, tell me what's happening, he would always say, nothing, nothing's happening. And so, <laughs> so that went on and on and on and on. Nothing was happening. And so finally, I said to this guy, because I had my teeth into him, and I said, well, I have contacted Aronson Hine in the Netherlands, and he said that if I come with you, uh, that he would allow us to use his facilities in the Netherlands. And the guy just went white because he knew he couldn't handle another LSD session. And so I said, well, I, I, I've made arrangements to go with you and run the sessions there. And he said, oh, my father would never approve of that. I said, oh, yes, your father has already approved it. So we can take you. So he said, well, I have to let you know when I'll be ready. Last I ever talked to him, I kept calling the house, and he was not never there, never there. Well, he never went out of the house. He had nurses uh, that stayed with him all day long. And um, but uh, he 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 was going out, and the, and the wife said, "Well, he's going out." The, and the we mother, mother said. The mother said that, and uh, we don't know where he is. And so finally, he moved out and took an apartment, and they didn't know where it was. And then he uh, got a girlfriend, and was living with this girlfriend. And so I would call occasionally and say, uh, well, let me know when you're ready to go to the Netherlands. Never heard from him. <laughs> so he became normal as the only retreat because there was nothing wrong with him. There's a threat of an LSD session hanging over his head. LSD session facilitated by you <laughs> hanging over his head frightened him into normality. That's right. <laughs> a treatment success, a dubious success. <laughs> Oh. It's going to be difficult to teach that in medical school, but uh, you know you got to take your success where you can find them, I guess. But you just said something of the right doses, and that's that's something that we haven't really talked about. Is that uh, looking at your work and the work that Myron was doing uh, a little mm -hmm. bit later, uh, they did much lower doses than you did. Uh, what do you think about dosages? High doses. High doses. And what do you consider a high? Six hundred milligrams. Oh, okay. Micro Microgram. Microgram. Yeah, because you can't fight. Uh, the ego can't fight 
So it's a matter of just shattering the defenses. Just shattering the defenses. But doing so in, in a safe, supportive setting, yes. which also provides adequate follow-up and help yes. integration. Yeah. Yeah. And skill, skillful facilitators yeah. would, would be imperative. Not anybody, I imagine, could do this work. I would never have uh, broken through if I hadn't had a huge dose the first time. Cause my ego couldn't handle, you know, my world dissolving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, but by that point, you had no ego. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you know, when Jonathan, I, when I first heard him say it, uh, I laughed, and I realized that later that uh, he was really serious, and it is, his statement was, Beware the dreaded underdose. And yeah. and I think there's a lot. That's a very oh, yeah, serious statement yeah, because yeah, I've seen much. people take a low-dose LSD and think they've done LSD and they move on and they've never really had the experience yeah. at 50 well, mics. You know? well, I, I still think a, a low-dose psycholytic dosage can be thera- have a therapeutic oh, effect. I think it no may doubt. be a matter of scale, yeah. a matter of degree. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't I, discount that potential. No, I, I agree. I, I think that the, the breakthrough is really crucial to break through that, that plateau mm-hmm. at least once. But after that, I think a therapeutic yeah. dose uh, can have some effect. Now, now, Gary, I believe that some of the last patients you treated with psychedelics in the late 60s um, were cancer patients. Is that correct? Yes, that's could you, correct. Could you kind of share some of what you learned doing that work? Well, that was done out of uh, Cedars of Lebanon. And the guy, the oncologist, um, was, uh, God, he was a nasty man, big guy, just, oh. And uh, so uh, he was, uh, I was giving people LSD. I particularly remember this one woman, and uh, she said that she didn't have any more pain. And so he came So after her LSD session, she reported that her her pain had significantly reduced. And it had gone. Gone away. And so uh, he was... She no longer needed the narcotic pain meds. Right. And he was furious, the oncologist. And he came in and said, I can show you by my x-rays that you have to have pain and quit lying to me uh, that you're having pain and you're going to take the pain medication. And she said, I'm not taking the pain medication and I'm going to discharge myself. And, um, and um, you know, just go my own way. And so he called... Uh, I guess it was Judd, and said, Dr. Fisher is making my patients all psychotic. (laughs) (laughs) These people (laughs) deny that they're having pain, and he's causing it. So he can't do that work anymore here. And uh, and that was the end of your career. That was psychedelic psychosis. (laughs) You cured your last patient, and they let you go. Well, that, that, that was about 40 years ago since you, I, I guess, um, kind of oh, yeah. left the field in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts as to what value psychedelics might hold today to uh, health and mental health professionals? Give it to everybody. 
really, can you imagine what this earth would be like and the politics and and the conflict and the wars if everybody could have an LSD session and see the ultimate, the great beyond, be a different world. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And I'm sure that you could tell that Gary was being quite serious when he suggested that LSD be given to everyone in the world. If you've been uh, fortunate enough to have tried it yourself, well then you know exactly what he's talking about, and uh, no doubt he's right. The course of human events could change direction radically if we had a one-day worldwide everybody-included acid trip, but uh, I'll let you speculate about that on your own. As regards Gary's work, however, I hope you'll have the time to take a look at his report. You don't have to be an expert or a doctor to read it, and uh, I think it'll hold some interesting surprises for you. In addition to a several-page summary, there is a paragraph or two about each of the children, and for every session there is a record of the date, the number of days between sessions, dosage information, etc., uh, I've posted the report itself at uh, matrixmasters.com slash Gary Fisher, and you can read it online, print it out, or download it in PDF format if you want. I also uh, plan on posting a JPEG scan of the original paper online sometime later this month. Uh, now, some other web work I plan on getting done uh, yet this month is uh, to add links to two of KMO's recent Sea Realm podcasts. They are his podcasts number 117 and number 118, and they feature interviews with Neil Kramer about uh, UFOs and crop circles. And I think Neil and KMO provide some excellent additional commentary on our podcast here from the Salon, numbers 150 and 125. As you know, in uh, number 150, Terrence McKenna spoke about UFOs, and in number 125, it was a uh, trialogue uh, about crop circles with Ralph Abraham, Rupert Sheldrake, and uh, Terrence McKenna. Now, you'll have to be the judge of this for yourself, but in my humble opinion, Neil Kramer's take on these topics is uh, certainly as good as we heard from Terrence and his friends, and I think it's a great extended commentary on these uh, very interesting topics. And while I'm uh, mentioning podcasts that are uh, sort of intersecting with the salon, our good friend Matt Palomary showed up on episode 5.0 of Black Light in the Attic. And I should uh, mention that just now I went to their website, uh, which is blacklightattic.podomatic.com, and I went there to verify the program number just now and discovered that uh, they are including some really great art with their program notes. So uh, you might give them a look if you get a chance. Now, I should also let you know that I'm uh, probably not going to be able to get a podcast out next week uh, because I'm leaving for the East Coast tomorrow. Uh, I'm going there to visit two of my children and uh, three of my grandchildren. And since I won't get back here until late next week, it'll uh, probably be the following week before you hear from me again. And so I thought I'd uh, read a few bits and pieces of email just to uh, let you know that your fellow psychonauts are, well, they're everywhere. The uh, first one comes from I'm Arnie, who says, I'm a long way from you here in South Wales. Good to know Robert O. is out in these hills somewhere. There's a lot of party activity here, but I've not come across, quote, the others yet. Lots of fun, natural living and home educating. 
tis easier to subvert the young that way, lol. But uh, nothing like your Burning Man. If anyone is going to Celtic Blue Rock and sees a woman, early 40s, with copper hennaed hair, grayish eyes, and copper band on the right wrist, you are welcome to say hello if you have a mind to. Uh, in case I wasn't supposed to uh, read that, I'm Arnie. Uh, should somebody come up to you that you don't want to meet, uh, just don't admit that you are you, uh, and they'll never know. <laughs> and I am Arnie ends by saying, Also penniless I may be, but I can still offer hospitality, and if you and your good wife ever have the urge to come visit our stone circles and ancient sites, we could make a wee bit of room for you in our small but beautifully located council house. Love and light, I am Arnie. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Well, uh, thank you for the very kind offer, and uh, although I've become a bit of a hermit lately, maybe this uh, trip to the East Coast will give me the travel bug once again. And uh, stone circles and ancient sites uh, would for sure be at the top of my list. Another email uh, comes from Carl, who says, uh, among other things, Whenever possible, I'd like to hear some thoughts on talking about psychedelics to family, especially elders and friends as the topic continues to be a taboo. Has it worked as a positive for others to open up to the people around them? Uh, actually, uh, Carl's question came in before I touched on that subject last week. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up again today is that uh, this is something that just keeps coming up over and over, but uh, nobody seems to have uh, many good answers here. What I'm thinking is that uh, one of our enterprising conference organizers should uh, put together an entire weekend program on just that topic. How do we talk about psychedelics to our families? Until then, uh, it sounds like a good topic for somebody to uh, add to one of the forums over at thegrowreport.com. Another uh, interesting message comes from longtime Slaughter Dean Haddock, who says... I recently developed Streamfist.com, that's S-T-R-E-A-M-F-I-S-T.com, which goes to YouTube and grabs playlists, not individual videos, and streams them continuously like a TV station. It's free, and it's a neat way to get a lot of those informational videos distributed in a free and search engine-optimized framework. Let me know if you have any input. The McKenna Talks on your broadcast are a huge impetus on this project. Well, Dean, uh, I haven't had a chance to uh, put together a stream yet or really test any of this, but I really like the concept, and uh, I'm hoping that some of our fellow Slaughters will look into putting some StreamFist.com streams together for us to share. I'm only just now beginning to experiment a, a little bit with torrents, and I found some amazing material tucked away in some of them. And I can see the same thing happening on StreamFist.com. If I can stay on schedule and uh, finish my new book by the end of this year, I'll uh, have some time next year to play with some of these new tech toys. But uh, something that doesn't uh, require a learning curve and uh, that simply blew me away is a link that I got from Jonathan Phillips, who is Reality Sandwich's community director. And by the way, if you haven't visited realitysandwich.com yet, well, uh, what are you waiting for? It's, uh, it's an amazing site where you're going to find a lot of people you've heard from here in the salon. And uh, anyway, I can't recommend highly enough the first video from their Ayahuasca Monologue series. This is uh, a video of a young man giving a talk at Allison and Alex Gray's Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in New York. And I am here to report that uh, it brought tears to my eyes. Uh, 
There's so much I'd like to say about this short video, but uh, until you see it and hear it for yourself, uh, it's going to be hard for you to imagine what I mean without me just repeating the whole thing. But uh, I don't think there's any doubt anymore but what uh, Lady Ayahuasca is about to extend her vines over the entire earth. Once again, I might add. Maybe I'm just uh, being overly sentimental once again, but I'll put a link to this video uh, along with the program notes to the podcast uh, on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog at psychedelicsalon.org. So if you uh, get a chance, take a look at it and see if you don't understand what I'm trying to say. It's a very powerful story, and uh, Jonathan uh, tells me that they plan on producing a new ayahuasca monologue on realitysandwich.com every month. Uh, and if they're only even half as powerful as this first one, uh, I think we're in for some amazing brain candy from those folks. Now, the last email I have time to read today comes from Cameron D., who says, Greetings, Lorenzo. My name is Cameron. I'm 19 and am living in Australia. I have been listening to your podcast for about four months now, and I have to say I'm hooked. At first, I was blown away to hear that there are so many like-minded people as myself. And uh, then she goes on to mention a CD on which she thought she heard Terrence's voice. Well, uh, Cameron, I, I haven't heard that particular track, but my guess is that you heard correctly. And now that you know who he is, I suspect that you're going to hear Terrence McKenna's uh, voice just uh, ghosting in the background of a, a lot of music that you like. But what I mainly want to say to uh, Cameron and, and to all of the other women who join us here in the salon each week is that not only are there millions of like-minded people out there, but that at least half of them are women. Uh, you know, in the podcast world, my favorite is uh, Black Beauty, who uh, podcasts uh, BB's Bungalow once a month on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. Now, BB has uh, a great program with a lot of variety, and hopefully more psychedelic women podcasters are uh, going to be surfacing soon. You know, I've had several long conversations with Jean Stoloroff about women in the psychedelic community, and hopefully she'll let me record one of these talks someday, but uh, I can say this. While Myron Stoloroff and Sasha Shulgin are truly giants, they would uh, be significantly lesser giants had it not been for Jean and Anne, who were there with them for almost every step of the way. Then there's uh, Kathleen, or, or Kat, Kat Harrison. Uh, she's another woman who is a hero in the psychedelic community. And if you ever get a chance to hear one of her talks, I, I think you're going to be blown away with her peaceful wisdom. You know, just by looking at the list of speakers that I've featured here in the salon, you'd probably think that this is uh, mainly a man's game. But that is very far from the truth. You know, if you want to get a little better appreciation for the important roles women have played in the psychedelic movement, I highly recommend reading Sisters of the Extreme, Women Writing on the Drug Experience, and it's uh, edited by Cynthia Palmer and Michael Horowitz. Uh, this, is, this is truly an extraordinary book, uh, beginning with women in myth and history, progressing through the Victorian era and up to the present. Palmer and Horowitz uh, weave a story of a few of the many very progressive women who have been leaders in the psychedelic community. While there are over 75 women whose written work is featured in this big book, what really captivated me the most are the stories that uh, Palmer and Horowitz tell, not only about the women whose work is featured, but also about many other women as well. 
Uh, I'd say that this is one of the books that no psychedelic library should be without. Another book I'd put into that category is uh, Paul Devereaux's 1997 volume titled The Long Trip, A Prehistory of Psychedelia, in which he says, We are at the dawn of an extremely sophisticated approach to decoding megalithic rock art, turning it into a written record of trance states across the ages. Basically, uh, this book sets out in great detail the new way archaeologists have begun interpreting prehistory. And what they have uncovered is uh, the fact that from the late Stone Age until uh, several hundred years ago, psychedelics were an integral part of life in almost every human society on Earth. And according to uh, some of the references in that book, uh, it now looks to me like uh, Terence McKenna might have gotten it right when he hypothesized that our humanness uh, began to evolve once we began ingesting psychoactive mushrooms. So uh, if your view of uh, the prehistoric ages comes from what you learned in school, well, it's uh, most likely out of date. It seems that we began our human era as stoned apes, but uh, right now far too many of us seem to have reverted back to just being plain old apes. How right Gary Fisher was just now when Charlie Grobe asked him what he thought should be done with psychedelic medicines like LST, and he said, Give it to everybody. Really, can you imagine what this earth would be like and the politics and and the conflict and the wars if everybody could have an LSD session and see the ultimate, the great beyond. Be a different world. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. This is novelist Tom Robbins. When my mother was diagnosed with glaucoma, her conservative Virginia physician told her there was only one treatment that might ease her pain and save her eyesight. That treatment was medical marijuana, which he could not prescribe. I offered to get her some and teach her how to use it effectively, but my father objected because marijuana was against the law. So my mother, who loved to read and walk in nature, was condemned to grow cruelly, unnecessarily blind. Tragedies like this happen all the time, but they don't have to keep happening. To learn more about medical marijuana, call the Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or visit them on the web at mpp.org.